Hey everyone, welcome to another Ruby Ropes. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel we have Andrew Mason. Hello. And Nate Hopkins. Hi everyone. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. And so today we're going to be talking about documentation. And I think it needs no introduction to those who listen to this podcast, but I think that we might have some interesting takes on what we consider to be documentation and where does it really fit within our application? So are we talking about documenting our code? Are we talking about documenting the application? So having a readme or some similar wiki, or does it go beyond there? Well, as long as we're not all in the camp of the code documents itself, then I think we might be able to have a good conversation. And, you know, for me, I think the code really does document itself because the code should be written in a way where you have a very visible entry point. And from there, you're going to be able to trace back everything that you need to for that request lifecycle. However, I do agree that there are some times when you had to deviate from what is the standard approach to something to something a bit more complicated. And I think it's in those points where we had those complications where some external documentation would really help someone see the full picture. And I think that's where it comes into play for me is when the code itself cannot paint easily the full picture, then you need some actual English or whatever language documentation explaining out in this area of the application, this feature, here's how you would go to extend it or build on to it. Yeah, I guess the the question to kind of frame this conversation then would be, where do we start? As developers, documentation starts in the comments, perhaps, and that might be some of the pushback on code documenting itself, right? Because if we're writing comments to try to explain what we're doing, that's probably a a signal that a refactor might be in order, some new methods or something like that, that that is a little more self-explanatory in the code uh, definition itself, because we all know comments tend to drift uh, away from reality and often will lie to you. But I mean, there's several layers above that of documentation as well, right? What is this library? What is this project? Where do I get started? What are the entry points? How do I how do I even set up my system to begin, right? If I want to contribute. Yeah, I will say if you have to write a comment about your code because it's too complex, then yeah, I think you should refactor. But if you're writing a comment because it specifically pertains to business logic, like if you're explaining like, okay, we're doing this for this reason because of this business logic, I think those are helpful. But yeah, if you're having to write a comment just because your method is super complicated, then I think it's time to refactor. Yeah, and sometimes it's not just a single method. 
So in a previous application that I worked on, it was really crazy amount of complex business logic that went into it. So you created this calculator and this calculator would take in several different kinds of rules about a user and how the user is going to be interacting and based on the company policies. So just to go through the calculations, it had to touch on 20, 30 different modules or different classes. And so what I ended up doing was writing some documentation on this particular area. And we use wikis on GitHub or whatever our version control is to have a like a developer document resources. And I just kind of explained out, if you're working in here, here's the important things that you need to know and the flow of things just so there is some familiarity right off the bat when someone goes in and starts working in there. Yeah, and I think like Nate said, like a getting started guide, like maybe detailing your dependencies, maybe some gotchas in the wiki or common bugs you may come across or maybe even common patterns I think are important. If you're using Docker, it's not as important because typically there's just a few commands, but I think those are still nice to document. I said in the pre-call that we are currently onboarding a new developer at my work. And I think if we didn't have some of those getting started guides in our repos in the in the readme's, then you know that would be a real pain because some there's some stuff that maybe not everyone can remember off the top of their head. Not every app is Dockerized. So yeah, I think it's really I think if you don't document anything else, like at least documenting how to get the app up and running is very important. Yeah, and how frequently that happens is uh, kind of will poke holes in your documentation as well. So every time we onboard a new developer or get a contributor, essentially you you point them at the documentation, and the the first task we give them is yeah, what plug any holes that you find in this, and there's always a surprising amount of gaps or things that have fallen out of date. Yeah, I do that as well, along with. Anytime a developer maybe switches teams or starts working on one of the apps that I'm working on, I always ask them, hey, if you had to set up this app for the first time, was there anything we're missing in our documentation? And by doing that, I think I've gotten to the point where on this one specific app I work a lot on, there really are none. Like the getting started guide is very clean, very thorough. And the last time I asked this question, the developer was like, no. I was able to get everything up and running just by the getting started guide. And that's such a good feeling. Now that your documentation is good enough to be repeatable by someone else. And I think that as soon as you bring in the first person on your team, that's when you kind of like start creating those documentations. You know, it's it's always an afterthought for me. You know, I will I will have certain steps that will have documented just to get the application up and running. However, it's not anything that's ever really feature complete until someone is actually getting onboarded on the team. And that's when I'm like, oh, yeah, we really need to iron this out and get the layout of it ironed out. But one thing for me that really helps is to have an overview of the application. So not only that getting started guide on how can you get that developer environment up and running as soon as possible for that person, but then also an architectural overview of what's going on with this application. 
and nothing too, too specific, but just like the different kind of components and how things are interconnected. You know, if it's just a standard monolith, then you'll have, you know, your web service pool, then you'll have your databases, and then you have, you know, what other Redis or whatever else. And I think that's a very simple architecture idea, but having that documented so someone can kind of see it and having that kind of familiarity, it's going to bring light to maybe some confusion or confusing parts, especially if you're a microservices application or something. Yeah, for me, those high-level uh, overviews are really helpful uh, visually, right? So having some diagrams that, that show how the system all fits together. One thing that is interesting to me about the, where this conversation is starting to go, and that is we're talking about just getting into a project. I mean, if we're talking about a commercial or, or closed-source project or even an open source project, getting people onboarded is an important first step. But once once you've dropped in, essentially we're treating those those developers or contributors as as consumers of our public facing app or API, right? So documentation, probably the next layer in my mind would be when you create libraries for either internal reuse or external reuse, documentation of what this thing does how you interact with it and what are the primary touch points or the next is the next major piece of documentation that's probably critical if you're if you're gonna spend any energy on this. Yeah, I agree. Especially, you know, so let's say if you create a gym that you're going to use between three of your different applications and it has a public API. So some classes or modules that have public methods that you're gonna be able to consume within your own application. And that's one thing I love about the Rails. Uh, the actual Rails gem, the documentation that they have is on a lot of the public methods that you're able to access at the top of the file or top of that method, they have it very well documented. And I think that's really useful in situations where you have a gem that's going to be shared across multiple applications because you don't want to necessarily break functionality in two other applications by making a change that you need for your third one. So where, where do you guys put this type of documentation that we're talking about right now? Is it all in the readme? Do you put it in a wiki? Where do you, where do you share this knowledge? So for me, I put that, I try to follow the Rails standard on how they document it. So in a public gym or in a, even if it's private within the company, an agenda that's going to be used across multiple applications, I'll put the documentation in the lines above the method. Or maybe at the top of the class, have some documentation on the class level and then in the methods. And then what tools are you using on top of that? RDoc. R-doc. I mean, I don't use, I don't use RDoc on every project, but I have seen it in a few projects, not just open source ones, but closed source ones, and they're starting to incrementally add it. And that can be very helpful if, like we kind of talked about earlier, the methods are complex, but they're not complex because they just need to be refactored, but they're complex because the business logic is built so that it needs to be kind of a, you kind of need more context. Do either of you use Yard for documenting libraries like this? Oh yeah, I said RDoc, I meant Yard. You know, personally, I really don't because I find that, you know, if the documentation's not very accessible, then I tend to not use it. And depending on your IDE that you're using or your editor, 
a lot of times you can have a go-to definition. And if your editor is set up in a way where it can actually go out into the external libraries to pull up the definition of the method, then you have the documentation right there on your screen without having to externally go look it up. So for me, I like putting it directly in the code. And if I can use something like Yard to build a list of all the classes and public methods, then, you know, that's great. But I don't rely on that for the documentation. That's actually an interesting point because my personal development style, if I'm, if I'm cutting code and down, and down inside my editor and want to see how something works, I'll, I'll follow the go to source. But I typically do not read the documentation. I'll just go straight to the code. Yeah. For me, it's either the readme or directly to the code. Yeah, I used to rely on the readme more. Now I go typically straight to the code, but I think it's important to note that, you know, a newer developer is not going to just go straight to the code. Like, because the code may not make sense to them. They may not have the context they need. They may just be more green and need more help in general. But I think that it's easy for us to say, oh, yeah, well, I mean, we have a little bit more experience. We can just go straight to the code. But for someone who's starting out or maybe someone just coming, if it's an open source project, someone who's just coming into the project, it's hard to say like, oh, yeah, just go to the code. You'll find everything you need there. I mean, you will, but how long is it going to take? Like, is it going to be, is it going to take long enough to the point where they're frustrated and they don't, if it's open source, they're like, all right, screw this. I'm not going to help or if it's a new new developer on like a internal project, are they just going to get super frustrated, which is going to lead to a downturn in their productivity? So I think that's just something important to keep in mind. Now that's a terrific point. And the only thing, the only pushback I would give there is maybe documentation isn't the entire solution, right? There's some practices like pair programming and things like that that we can employ to help level up those junior programmers. I remember uh, pairing with a junior one time and and just cracked open a gym with a bundle open and just went into the gym to kind of see how things were implemented. And it completely blew their mind that I was, you know, down in the internals looking at stuff. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw someone use bundle open and I was like, wait, wait, what just happened? Like I said, it's easy for us to be like, oh, yeah, you can do that. But I think Nate did bring a, a good point up when that, you know, other there are other things you can do to help ease some of that pain, like pair programming. One question I do have for y'all, though, is we've been talking a little bit specifically about documenting the code itself. What about documenting patterns or best practices or you know procedures and things along that line? Like we don't use the service object pattern, we use the interactor pattern, things like that. If it can go into a Rubicop YAML, then that's where it belongs, and all the developers should have... Rubicop extension installed. For me personally, I think that any kind of styling guides that can fit into a Rubicop YAML should go in there. And that goes for basically every kind of project. Because you might have a lead developer on one project that requires you to have no more than 80 characters on a single line, and they are very adamant about that. Well, you know, that's not my style, but if that's a style of the project, then I should adhere to that if I'm working on that project. But I'm not going to go out of my way to ensure that I'm fitting within those guidelines. I think that that should be dealt with by my editor. My editor should bark at me and say, hey, 
you're not following the guidelines. Yeah, I agree with that to a point. There are some high-level items that you may want to call out in your project, right? And, and where do you put that documentation? Does that, should that live in the readme? Does it go above the class? Uh, I, I guess the, the challenge there is like, how do we, since we're cutting code every day, we're in our editors, we're, we're, we're typing on source files, that, that's a logical place to start this effort if, if you haven't been uh, very faithful about you know, documenting the things. But at the same time, in my mind, I, I think of it kind of like uh, testing as well. So integration, I find much more value in integration tests at a high level where I can get a lot of coverage with minimal effort or less effort, perhaps. Documentation I see in a similar light where if I can call out the major components like we we started the conversation on, maybe diagram, say here's all the main architectural pieces, here's the principal libraries that you need to be concerned with, and here's how they all kind of plug and fit together. In my mind, that's far more valuable in establishing like the holistic view of your project as opposed to like being really specific about the nitty gritty, you know, here's this method definition and, and the arguments it accepts and, and why it's, you know, why it does this or what its function is. Yeah. One thing I will mention though, kind of to tack on to that is if you work for an organization and you have several repos, and there's shared documentation, then where where does that go? Do you create a documentation repo? Do you create some sort of document that's not stored on GitHub that the company has access to? And I guess also along with that is, how do you keep that up to date? If you're working on, if your company has you know, 20, 20 projects, how do you keep all that documentation up to date if it's spread through the readmes or wikis of the individual projects? Yeah, in my experience, the further away that documentation lives from the actual code, the faster and more likely it is to drift away from the truth. Yeah, I agree. And so working in a microservices application, there's a good chance that you're going to have several different repos. And so in that situation, I would have a completely separate documentation repo for that project. And in that project, documentation repo would live the um, how this application works, the, how things are interconnected, the coding guidelines or the style guidelines, as well as the Rubicop YAML file in each one of the repos. But then that's kind of where I would put it. So it lives close enough to the source code to where you're going to be able to refer to it because chances are you're going to be in the version control anyways. Yeah. One thing we've brought up a few times now um, is style guidelines. Do one of y'all want to take a crack at maybe giving your explanation of what a style guideline is and maybe some examples online? Like I know Airbnb has one that I've read through. I think there's a couple I've read through, but I find those super helpful. But again, like how do you keep that from going stale as well? It's really something that someone has to commit to maintain or a group of people have to commit to maintain. The ThoughtBot has a style guideline. I don't think it's been updated recently, but it's one that it's really kind of cool. They touch on everything from the production checklist. They have things about different development styles and, you know, basically everything you need to know on the, on the team. Yeah, there's some tools that you can... You know, wire up into your CI build pipeline as well that will complain and you know even comment on on issues or pull requests and things like that to kind of keep everybody in line. 
for me, I'm, I'm exceptionally lazy. So I, I prefer to just hand this off to somebody else to maintain and manage the style guide. Like I, I actually enjoy you know, the freedom. So there's been some pushback on, on style tools like prettier for JavaScript, right? Where people feel a little shackled in their creativity around how they structure or write their code. But I find the, the ability to reduce you know, all the bike shedding that happens around how should we, you know, do we use semicolons? Do we not use semicolons? That kind of, all those types of conversations just go away and you get to focus on things that are a bit more important. And so I've recently landed on a tool called uh, standard RB or standard from test double. It's like a series of rules that we're talking about that sits on top of RuboCop. And I've plugged that into a few of my projects and have been really enjoying that. Basically run it every time right before commit in a pre-commit hook. Yeah, as long as the tool will do it for me, then I don't really care. Like if I can hit save on my editor or push a commit and the style or whatever plugins you're using automatically fixes it to the way it needs to be, then I don't care really what the style is because I can write how I want to write it. And then if the company has you know, preset guidelines on how they want certain things to be, you know, the tool should handle that for you. So I don't have to sit there and like, I don't know, conform maybe to something that I find less helpful or less productive. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. One of the interesting observations that I've got about using a tool like this or, or, or just a, a style guide that enforces something, essentially what we're, what we're advocating for is, eliminating some of our manual work of documenting what that style guide is, right? If we can outsource that to a third party or, or an open source project that that's being a bit more diligent in terms of keeping it up to date and managing that, then that's less work we have to do. That's less documentation we have to write. So it's, it's again, it's, it goes back to like this value of developer laziness, which really isn't laziness. It's just trying to stay focused on the things that really matter. Yeah. I think that a project that, consistently uses the same style, whether right or wrong, will help reduce the technical debt of that project versus having everyone use their own style for developing within that project. It's almost like you have one person using Hamel, another person using Slim, and another person using ERB in the same project. You know, if everyone does their own thing, then it's going to be a mess and you're going to have overhead or eventual conflicts with each other. So having a documented style guide, whether it is in the README or in its own repo, and making sure that everyone who is contributing on that project has a link to that information and will check it often to see if anything has changed is really important for a project. Yeah, consistency is, is paramount, right? Regardless of, of what tools we've chosen, but it needs to be ERB. Uh, I'm not even getting into this right now. I will say that I think one thing that is important is if you're using an automated tool like RuboCop or Standard or Prettier or Hamelint or Sasslint or one of the 8 million other linsers, I think it's important to run that as a check in your CI. Like I know Pronto will specifically run lints against actually committed code and maybe that's better for a old project that you don't want to, like if you adopt like a style guide after the project's been going for a few years, maybe that's a better choice. But 
when I start a new project, I usually go with Rubicop, but I've also been looking at standard, but I usually go with Rubicop and I make sure that I run Rubicop before I commit. But if I don't, I make sure that the CI won't pass if there's failing cops. And I think that's important to make sure that you can keep any of those lints from making it in and not just relying that the developer has done it on their own. Yeah. And as long as the CI does not automatically change the source code to what it should be, you know, I'm in total agreement. I've heard of some people trying to have their CI update the source code based on the styling or whatever. Because, you know, with Rubicop, it can do some quick fixes on certain kind of styling, like uh, a blank line must be after guard clauses or something like that. As long as my CI isn't doing that for me, I'm in total agreement. Now, if you're running on your application or in your terminal, Rubicop with the auto fix or something, and you review those changes before you commit it up, then that's awesome. That works for me. Okay, I'm interested why, because... I've never actually done this, but I've tried it a few times to get the CI just to do it itself. I know Rubocop is hard to argue for for doing that because occasionally Rubocop will do something that is destructive to the code. But tools like Prettier, I have never found an instance where it does. And I don't really see an issue with running Prettier in the CI to just automatically do it. I think a better way would be to use a before hook, a git before hook like Nate was talking about to where when you're committing up your code, it's going to run the script or whatever you know shell script you have for it to do it then. But I think that in the CI, you should only be reading data and you know playing around with it. You should never be mutating it, you know, specifically your code. I think that at that point, code should be frozen unless if another merge request or push has been made. Because you're opening up the window for way too many unknowns and then something slipped through the cracks and then now you are working on a Friday night debugging something in production. So I've got a question in terms So there's a distinction here between like API level uh, documentation. So I'm going to take this back to documentation a little bit, right? So API level documentation. However, there's some really rich documents that can be generated from that with tools, right? On top of things like yard. So for example, api.rubyonrails dot org is it dot org yeah generates some really wonderful documentation that's easily searched and very easily understood or grokable very friendly to beginners to understand what's going on and i'm sure you know the rails documentation has a lot of contributors to it probably could use more uh, there's certainly times where i've found the, even the rails documentation lacking a little bit and hence cracking open source code and drilling all the way in, which is kind of a fun spelunking exercise in and of itself, right? To, to read other people's code will level anyone up. But I'm just curious, what tools are available to, to generate assets like that, that are close to the code, but are digestible outside of the code? Are you guys using anything? Yeah, so for APIs, you know, specifically, and I think that what I said previously is kind of exclusion of APIs, It was more uh, around the styling. But for APIs, I will use Swagger to generate the documentation. And I've just, you know, I found it. It worked. And I really like the output it gives. Yeah, I've used a few Blueprint, Swagger, 
Yeah, I've tried a few, and they are all kind of terrible in their own way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess it's just picking the lesser of the other known evils. Yeah, I don't write a lot of API, but I do agree that if you're going to document anything, you need to document your API. I've never used any of those tools, but I'm going to stick them in my back pocket for whenever I do need them. Yeah, the thing I like about Swagger is that you can create your specs, so your spec tests that you're writing out. And from those, if you adhere to the DSL that your Swagger UI engine wants, then it's going to be able to automatically generate that documentation for you. So I know we touched on this a little bit, but how do we keep documentation up to date? Is it just a checkbox in your pull request template or do you use some sort of tool or what? Because I have run into developers before where I'm like, you know, it'd be really helpful if we documented this and they are just so anti-documentation. I almost want to look at them and ask like, how did documentation hurt you? (laughs) Because I find it valuable, but I understand that their argument that like, you know, it goes out of date super fast, but I think there are ways that we can ensure that it doesn't. We can ensure that the documentation stays up to date. So what do you guys think about that? How can we do that? Well, if your documentation lives in a separate repo, you can open up issues and those issues have to go into your normal sprint work. You know, maybe have, um, like, I remember back at Sage, we had a uh, documentation team, you know, a team dedicated for creating client-side documentation. So documents that went out to clients on releases, they also managed updating the PDF books, you know, like the manager user guides for the books as well. So we had to work closely with them to update that. And if you're lucky enough to have a team dedicated to doing something like that, then that's work that you don't have to do yourself. Otherwise, I think it falls back onto the team that if you guys are having a problem with keeping documentation up to date, then on each story, if applicable, if it needs documentation, then have that as one of your tasks, just like you would a code review. I am so jealous that you had a code review or a document team. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think you could apply the principles of Yagni to this as well, right? If you're a small shop or, or even a solo developer working on something, it depends on who the audience for that is, right? If, if it's just you at the moment, maybe documentation isn't that important. But as the team grows, as you want to solicit you know, more contributors, then it becomes more important. And it's just a matter of wait. Maybe you wait till it hurts before you really start to focus on this. Obviously, by the time you've scaled up to a dedicated documentation team, you know, the need has presented itself. Was well, there anything else about documentation we want to talk about? I think it's, you know, I, I think as we have alluded to, it's one of those things that's often forgotten about, whether it started getting created, just never finished or never updated. But it's an important aspect and poor documentation or no documentation, it's just as harmful as technical debt, you know, because if you had people going into your application without knowing where things are placed or how things are interconnected or how to develop to maintain a consistency of code style, then 
you're going to eventually get to a breaking point where the application just needs to be completely refactored or a lot a lot of areas need to be redone. Yeah, one thing I will bring up real quick is that something that my team has been experimenting with recently is when you have common bugs or common you know, help desk tickets that you have to address and fix, we've started creating screencasts um, for them, kind of walking through how you fix it, why the issue's occurring, and kind of just leaving like an explainer for the next person who may run into it, which I have found super helpful because if I hit an issue that I'm not sure how to solve, the first place I go check is this um, folder we have full of these videos. And it, it's more helpful for me at least to hear someone explain, you know, why this is happening, how this is happening, how they're going to fix it, and kind of walking through their thought process there than it is to just read like, oh, this bug is occurring and we can't fix it, but here's the steps you go to like correct like the instance of it happening like in written form. Yeah, definitely video tutorial in any, you know, for anything, if it's a bug or, or just explaining how a library works can communicate a lot of nuance that might be hard to capture in the documentation, right? One, one last thought I had on the documentation, it re- this conversation has reminded me of a, an article I read a while back called Readme-Driven Development, where it's similar to test-driven development in the sense that it's going to force you to think about what it is you're about to create in the code, and you document it first, which oftentimes will tease out you know, it, it causes developers to pause because we're so quick to rush into the code, causes us to pause, really think about what's, what it is we're creating, why it's necessary, how it should be consumed, and, and how it should be presented to third, you know, third parties that are going to come in and, and be consumers of your, of your library or your method or you know, whatever level of abstraction this thing is. As long as those readmes don't turn into specs and you go back to a waterfall design, then I'm all for that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's a, a bit of a slippery slope, right? Yeah. By the way, just a, a little plug for uh, the Basecamp team. They're, they just released a book on how they work called uh, Shape Up. And it's really fantastic. It kind of touches on some of that stuff. Like how, at what level of detail do you describe something before you begin work on it, right? Anyway, it just kind of jogged my memory of, of that book. I think that's, they released it about a month ago or so. Yeah, I remember checking that out. They had a pretty interesting approach to things where it's not how much uh, time will this take, how much will this cost to develop or build? Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic read. I've, I recommend it to all, all teams that are involved with building uh, software to kind of revisit or rethink their, their own internal development processes. Yeah, I've been meaning to get to that. It's on my ever-growing list. Awesome. Today's sponsor is Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud scale infrastructure, applications, and logs. Datadog integrates seamlessly with more than 350 technologies so you can track every layer of your complex microservice architecture all in one place. Distributed tracing for Ruby applications and APM provide end to end visibility into requests wherever they go across hosts, containers, and service boundaries. With rich dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and collaboration tools, Datadog provides your team with the tools they need to quickly troubleshoot and optimize modern applications. See for yourself. Start a 14-day free trial today by visiting DTDG, that's Datadog without the A's and O's, DTDG.co slash Ruby Rogues, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Should we move on to picks? 
right, Nate, you want to start us off? Yeah, I didn't really, uh, I'm not very prepared on my pick. So I'm going to just use a, do a shameless plug here for CodeFund. CodeFund is a company that I am a, a co-founder of with Eric Berry and, and our small team. And essentially what CodeFund is, is a, an ethical advertising network that's focused on the developer community. So if you are a developer that has a blog or a project or a project website that's promoting you know, your, your own work or libraries that you want to share with the world and would like to, to generate some recurring passive income from that effort, we're, we're your solution. Um, the reason we're a little different than some of our competitors is that we don't track your users. So we don't, we don't cookie them. We don't track them across you know, different websites that they're visiting and things like that. And that's, that's where the, the term ethical advertising comes from. So we will protect your audience and they are safe with us. And if you're an advertiser, and, and essentially that, that allows us to build up this network of kind of long tail distributed developers and, and all these varied projects within our publisher network. So if you're an advertiser that wants to reach the developer audience that might be focused on a, on a specific niche or, or, or some specific aspect of programming, we're a pretty unique place where you can reach those developers. Awesome. And Andrew, do you have any picks? I do. Also, real quick, I will say that anytime I'm on a website and I see an ad that's sponsored by CodeFund, it always makes me smile. So my first pick is I have been trying to dive into Vim a little bit. And I came across something called Space Vim, and I'm actually really liking it. I know it's not super core Vim, it's super hardcore, but I'm kind of enjoying it. And I found it because of the tools it gave me out of the box, it was easier for me to dive in than it has been in the past when I've tried. Also, my second pick is Rails 6.0.0 RC2 came out the other day. And if you've never heard of this tool called railsdiff.org, it is really nice, and I, I'm really glad that someone showed it to me one day. So railsdiff.org is really helpful if you're trying to upgrade and you want to compare changes between the Rails versions. Yep, I'm a big fan of that site. So I'll jump in with the pick. Uh, it is the Jackery Supercharger Portable. So I recently made a trip out to Utah earlier this year, and I didn't want to be without power. So I had these little 10,000 milliamp hour battery packs and they were okay. You know, they are good for charging my phone and stuff, but I also recently took the family out to the beach. And so those little 10,000 milliamp battery chargers weren't really enough. So this thing is 26,000 milliamp hours and it's a 45 watt charger. So not only is it more powerful than these little dinky ones, so it can charge my phone, my tablet, but it can also charge my MacBook Pro. So it has a USB-C connection, and it'll charge the battery up to full. So definitely a bit pricier, but it's definitely on the higher end of the portable chargers. Nice. All right. Well, I think we'll call it a wrap and talk to you guys soon. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.